0: Excellent. Um, uh, now we're live. Um, so I'm, I'm Jeff Levy. Um, I've had a varied career, but I do a podcast called my dog, Brandy. Um, and it's all about, uh, the case hound that I had while growing up in the Boston area and the adventures we had, uh, together. And, um, uh, if you don't know what a case hound is, they're basically like 40 pounds walking stomachs like they just <laughs> they just freaking eat everything inside. You know, he, he could be he could be sound asleep in my bed. And if the treat door, treat drawer or the refrigerator opened up, man, he would be like right there. If anything else happened, he'd be sound asleep. So um, and I just launched um, I think I told you the story. I just launched the episode when he died and came back to life. Um, which is, which is that's an amazing. amazing
1: story. Yes. Yeah. It's
0: an amazing story. So make sure, you know, whoever's watching it, you know, you, 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 yeah. you go uh, again, my dog, Brandy, that's my only plug you can get on iTunes, Spotify, et cetera. But I am incredibly excited uh, to have uh, Holly uh, Firestein, uh, who's the chief people officer of Ethos Veterinary K- uh, Health um, on. So thank you And we know we've known each other for I think two two years back when I was at Harvard Business Review, Um, and you're so much fun. So uh, (laughs) thank you. So thank you. Um, So um, and this is you know for everyone that's watching, this is being recorded. The replay, Facebook will I guarantee you recirculate this in your um, uh, in your feed for the next week. Um, So your background is um, first of all, let me start. You're new to the Boston area, right? Relatively.
1: Yeah, we, we've been here for about one year, just a little over one year.
0: So have you, so this is, oh, well, it's a great, it's a, it's a great city. This is, so this is before the pandemic. So have you had an opportunity to sort of get out and see everything Boston has to offer? Uh,
1: Not everything, but, uh, but we made some really good attempts when we first moved in prior to the pandemic to get out every weekend. You know, what we loved about Boston and, and Massachusetts overall is that people do stuff on the weekends. You know, I've, I've lived in several states, and this is the most active uh, area by far. Oh, and you may hear my uh, my two rescue dogs barking right now.
0: Oh, that's great. Home. That's great. <laughs> so, Bring them in if yes. you want. Bring them in yeah. if you
1: want. <laughs> I hear them barking downstairs right now, but yeah, we we absolutely love it here. It's uh, we didn't move here because of a position. We actually moved here because um, it, it actually goes back to when we met Jeff um, when I, <laughs> I had won the subscriber promotion for Harvard Business Review and was flown out to uh, to meet with Jeff Busking from Flybridge Capital and. Um, I hadn't been to the Boston area since I was a kid and just, I fell in love with it all over again. Went back uh, to where we lived at the time, which was St. Louis, Missouri and said, "Uh, yeah, we need to move to Boston. (laughs) And so we made it happen.
0: (laughs) Oh, wow. Wow. So I'm responsible for your move to, to Boston?
1: Yes, you uh, and Jeff for sure. Uh, Jeff and I are still in contact two years later as well, and um, yeah, it's it's been amazing. We have zero regrets. It's it's probably one of the first times in my life that I just moved someplace uh, because that's where I I really thought that it would be great for our family to be, and the lifestyle really matched what what our lifestyle was. So you know, so many times I've moved ac- uh, across the. The country because of a career opportunity. So it was it was nice to move because this is just where we felt like we were at home.
0: Wow. Well I think that's probably in my two years or so at Harvard Business Review. I think that would probably be the only achievement I've done. <laughs> so I'm glad I'm glad there's something I can put like on my resume rather than right now. It's just like a yeah I work there and like a blank base. So <laughs> well, uh, you were responsible
1: down. for our move. Uh, if if yeah. I had not won the the contest, I would not have, I, we say it all the time, we would not live here right now because uh, I hadn't been out out here since I was a kid. So.
0: Wow. <clears throat> wow. Yeah. Well, that's great. That's great. Now you have um, sort of an, an amazing background, right? You, uh, you finished an Ironman Competition. You're a lifelong learner. Uh, clearly, you're a risk taker. You know, as I said, you seem mm-hmm. to be like this adrenaline junkie. Um, if that wasn't enough, you coach executive MBA students, uh, and you're on the board of um, this organization that I, I want to get into about pathways to independence because I think that's uh, that's amazing. But um, what's interesting about your background, like if I were if I someone was going to ask me like what career you would have. I would not put you're the (laughs) chief people officer of Ethos. And just so everyone knows, Ethos is an amazing um, uh, veterinary hospital. I guess I would say system, right? In the United States.
1: Yeah, it's it's a network of um, specialty and emergency hospitals uh, across the country. So we've got 25 locations that really stretch from uh, Northeast to Hawaii.
0: Great. And- so, what? Um, how does an adrenaline junkie get her fix by being the chief people officer of 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 this type of organization?
1: Well, I'll, I'll answer it a couple ways. Um, so, I am one of the newer uh, newer type of uh, CHRO CPO type people that did not come from an entire career steeped in human resources. Uh, I've spent a lot of my career, not working in human resources. And so I really kind of fell in love with business first. And then as I started working in business, I really started to fall in love with the people aspect. And so this is kind of a nice bridge for me in this type of role where uh, an organization like ethos really understands the strategic business aspect of people and really cares about people and wants to bridge that business strategy with the people strategy. You know, when you really kind of find that sweet spot, you can really advance the business and the people together, and that's the beautiful, um, the beautiful spot to be in. Um, and I, so I say that because that means I'm really not a traditional HR, CHRO type person. Um, <laughs> I take
0: <laughs> not at all.
1: Yeah, it's I'm. I don't see uh, the the people function as one that should be kind of the principal's office and you know the the holder of compliance and all managing every single risk uh, through the throughout the organization um, So I love it because in the right type of organization like ethos, it's really a creative innovative position versus the place of no <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> or the place that you know colleagues, here, oh my gosh, the chief people officer is coming, I must be in trouble, you know, that would be my worst nightmare is to have people view my role as one of, oh my gosh, she only comes and talks to us when we're in trouble, or, you know, we want to present some new way that we can recognize people or really take care of our people um, in, a, in, in a really new way, and she's going to immediately say no, because that doesn't align with what our handbook says. So, you know, I've, I answer it to say that the type of organization that I can work in in this type of role is really a small circle. Uh, it depends on how the organization views their people and how they really view this role. If it's a role that is a, a true strategic partner to the business, or if it's one that's more of an administrative, we'll make all the strategic decisions and then you go do the paperwork. hmm. How did you how did you get connected to to Ethos? I was actually contacted by an executive search firm, and it was it was funny because um, I have spent you know the last twenty plus years of my career in human healthcare, and so when I had this outreach from a search firm about um, something in veterinary medicine, it took me by surprise because. I don't. I have not gotten that outreach before, and so i i had to I had to think about it for a minute to say, "Gosh, is this kind of a a strange path in my career where I'm uh, I'm going to be losing all of that healthcare knowledge that I've gained over the last twenty plus years?" and And the more I started to research veterinary medicine and ethos in particular, I realized this close synergy between um, the practice of human health care and the, and the practice of veterinary medicine. And when I toured our hospitals, I thought I was going to walk in and I would feel completely uh, out, of, out of my comfort zone because I wouldn't know any of the technology or the conversations or how they were um, performing their roles. And in fact, it all was very comfortable. As soon as I started seeing things, I'd say, oh, well, yeah, that's like a digital bedboard in a human hospital. Oh, you know, that position is functioning the exact same way. It's just called something different. But the way that the interaction with the patient and the importance of the quality of care um, is exactly the same. The work streams are so similar. It's just the patient has four legs a lot of the time versus two and the patient can't tell you what they're feeling, which I think uh, makes it a really intriguing and, and difficult practice. If you think about it, I frankly had never thought about, gosh, you know, how does a DVM really understand? Whereas in human health, if the patient's conscious, um, and coherent, they can tell you what's going on or what chain of events led up to the injury. You know, in veterinary medicine, that's not the case. So, um, so I had a whole different level of respect uh, for veterinary medicine. The more I've, I've really started to understand it, and I'm, I'm still just scratching the surface in my understanding. But I, I love it so much. I've just. I've always had my interactions in the front of the house bringing my pets in. Yes. So it's, it's been fun to understand the, the, what's happening behind the scenes. And it's even more reassuring to see that the compassion and care and um, commitment and connection is the exact same that you would find in human health care, um, but probably with a little more complexity since the patients can't speak to you.
0: Yeah, and I've got to imagine that um, in in human healthcare, care, let's say at a hospital, it's probably rare, and I'm just guessing, that a doctor would sort of fall in love with their patient, but in a veterinary clinic or hospital, that's got to be, you know, it's got to be much easier, and I don't know, maybe it's okay if that happens um, during those times.
1: Yeah, I I would say um, you know again, kind of going back to this these parallels and this um, connection between human and pet medicine, um, even from the the vet techs, uh, vet assistants, any anyone that works within the the hospital, that connection that they feel to the patient is is the same. Um, You know, you have the same types of um, challenges with the with the caregivers and compassion fatigue that you see in in human health care. So even the things that that those um, workers and colleagues are feeling mirrors what you see in human health care where, you know, the the compassion fatigue, the the emotional strain, you know, when you think of euthanasias that happen, um, you know, it, it's it's really hard um but i, I think same as human health care that people are drawn to it because they have such a passion for caregiving for um for patients whether you know as we said whether the patient is is a as a human or an animal the similarity is that they have a caregiver mentality and they just want to help and and make make people and animals better so I would say that there's you know, the same type of people are drawn to to each of the industries where they're a caregiver um, and really nurturing first. And at times, as somebody who's a chief people officer really tasked for caring for caregivers <laughs>
0: right, right, right. who may
1: put themselves second. And I would tell you 99% of the time they put themselves second. Um, it's really hard to appeal to them to say, listen, You've got to take care of yourself at the same time. Um, the more you take care of yourself on your own health and well-being, you know, the better care you can provide. Um, mm-hmm. it you can't really you can't really appeal as much to say, well, it's you know it's for your own good to take care of yourself because they're they're so focused on the good of others, right <laughs> right. That that right. type of message doesn't resonate as much as you can say, listen, the the more rested you are, the more you've taken care of yourself, the better you can treat those patients who need you so much and who you love and they love you so much. Um, it's kind of like the airlines where they say, you know, put your mask on first before you put the mask on the person next to you. Exactly. Same, same type of thing. Building that resilience and in, in challenging times uh, is everything.
0: Um you know the one thing that came in mind i've got to ask cuz this has been sort of a burning question when i had when we had brandy every time we brought him back from the from the vet we always he insisted that we stop for an ice cream uh, <laughs> at a soft serve and he got one i got one which i probably ate like half and he had my half and his we always thought the 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 veterinary doctor recommended that to him do you guys recommend to the patients that you have that to try to connive some treats or an ice cream <laughs> out of the out of the parents? I'm just curious if this uh, is how widespread this practice is.
1: <laughs> I I think we would advise our patients and their families that love them so much to uh, to uh, do whatever they think will help the patient feel happy and best uh, and keep them healthy. Uh, I happen to have. A rescue red retriever who has a weight problem right now. So <laughs> we are <laughs> uh, we are trying to to take care of him and maybe not do quite as many treats uh, because now it's affecting his health the the negative way. Uh, yes, I would I would say uh, if you look on um, our ethos Facebook page, we right now have an ethos talent competition going on, and these are the pets of our colleagues that they have trained to do all of these incredible things and so if you want to have some real entertainment and see some some animals who have earned their treats uh take a look at that i i was watching some of them um yesterday and they're amazing there's a a cat that is missing an arm that that does some tricks there um there's a horse uh some dogs so all kinds of of, of animals that you'll see our colleagues own. Uh, There's a bunny too, if I remember right. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And so kind of on that vein where we were talking about uh, the, the colleagues fall in love with their patients, they absolutely do. So if we have patients that come in that are in need of a home. It, it wouldn't be unusual for you to find uh, some of our colleagues that have you know six animals that they've taken in because uh, because they've met them through the practice and they need a home and so they're wow. constantly you know either taking them in themselves uh, or they are diligently trying to find you know permanent families for for these animals in need.
0: So it, it sounds like, and by the way, I just want to show a couple of uh, uh, comments. So. Lauren is like, we love Holly. Uh, I love you, know,
1: you
0: too. You got, uh, you know, Cindy. Hello, hey, Cindy. The organization clearly <laughs> supports your uh, your premise that uh, uh, they tend to fall uh, they tend to fall in. And then Maureen, I know, I used to work with her at Harvard Business Review. Um, so she's definitely in line with the fact that they they really <laughs> can insist that they get uh, they get ice cream uh, after. And a, they
1: have nonverbal cues, right? So oh, I, yeah. I love that insist because it's not a verbal insistence, but there is some sort of nonverbal cue uh, that she's picking up on that means, yeah, give me ice cream now.
0: Right. <laughs> right. They, they
1: speak with their eyes.
0: <laughs> oh, oh, incredibly! And then I remember <clears throat> Brandy when we would drop. Like he would be so nervous, which I think is the other thing is because um, <clears throat> first of all, I'm a big believer that there are a lot. You know, dogs are certainly a lot more intelligent than than we give them credit for. But I know Brandy was um, was would shake when we would bring him into the um, vet's office, even for something routine, because. They're not sure what's going to happen, and you have this challenge of communicating to them. But when we took him back, he would he would bark as we approached the ice cream place, and you could see you're absolutely right in his (laughs) eyes. Like, you either stop for ice cream, or you're going to be paying for this later.
1: Right, uh, kind of um, that uh, dose response, right? The Pavlov's dog, where (laughs) they start to pick uh, up, and you've reinforced the behavior, so now they now they know how to ask for it.
0: Exactly. I, I got to believe, you know, I, we talked about this. Um, the stresses that um, someone in the veterinary field uh, has when they treat a patient doesn't, it, at least from my perspective, doesn't seem to get talked about a lot. You know, we talk a lot more about a uh, human caregiver. Uh, and I have a very good friend of mine who used to be a top surgeon in Boston, went through the Harvard surgical service. And he said um, the worst thing when he went through surgical residency was working at Children's Hospital and having to tell a parent that a young child was not going to make it. Like he, he could not. He, he eventually <clears throat> he did his rotation and he said, "I can't, I can't go back there." So I can imagine it's probably similar for someone in the veterinary healthcare. How do how do you help them sort of manage that stress?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's. It, there's always a a focus on how can we better take care of our caregivers and make sure that they have tools, resources, support mechanisms, everything in place that they can access as they want to access. Um, I think you have to have those support mechanisms available, you know, at somebody's fingertips, because, um, you know, these types of things can actually start to just build up where you feel like you're okay for a while, and then just that aggregation of all of the emotions that have, um, have been affecting you that may, have not, may not have surfaced to your awareness yet are actually there. And so by the time they do surface, it's important that those those support mechanisms are available at somebody's fingertips when they need them the most. I would tell you that, you know, my role is really one that has to be focused on those things. Um, I need to have a pulse on how the organization is feeling at all times and then reconcile that against, you know, how are we positioning our our benefits? Do we have the right benefits um, for people to access where they feel supported and cared for? Um, you know just as much as they're caring for uh, for their patients my my job is really to care for them mm. and be looking out to make sure that that they do have everything that they need you know we want an organization that people um, people feel supported feel happy to come to work you know really, love their coworkers. And, and those are the things that help get you through those harder times. You know, the purpose um, for what the, what you do is huge. Right. And so I think that the, the mission of ethos, the purpose of the people who work within ethos is so strong that, you know, it's a calling. And so they've Mm -hmm. been called to this profession. And our, our role is to really make sure that they have everything they need to be able to provide the best quality care to to patients, but also have a lot of fun at the same time. You know, your your, your people that you're surrounded with make all the difference in the world. So, um, however, we can create this community within Ethos and really support people from um, from whatever state they're in. Um, that's the goal, and so I'm I'm really thankful to have joined ethos and and really understand their commitment. It part of my screening process for them. And, and I'll remind all job seekers out there right now that, you know, an interview is a two way street. So don't feel like as a candidate, all of the power is with the company that you're interviewing with. You should be interviewing them at the same Mm. time and really understanding if you're going to spend so much of your life with this employer, and this particular role, it should really speak to you. And so you should ask those really important questions of your interviewers and of the organization um, so you make the right decision too. So I asked a lot of questions around, you know, what is your commitment to taking care of people? And if that's going to cause radical change in the organization, if I come to you with a strategy, that is radically mm. different than how you do things today. Is that something that you're going to support? And of course, um, Ethos said yes. So mm. you know, as a as a natural disruptor and a risk taker, as as you mentioned, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my worst my worst nightmare is is coming into an organization that doesn't want to do anything different than what they're doing, and my role is one to just maintain. You know, status quo. If if there's no opportunity mm-hmm. to innovate and think differently and meet people where they are in a really dynamic fashion, mm-hmm. um, I'm not interested. And right. and so that's one of the things I love about Ethos is is um, the commitment. It's actually one of our core values is innovation. So mm-hmm. uh, so we take that seriously. We we actually have a nonprofit that's called ethos discovery. So I'll um, I'll give a little plug for ethos discovery because it's, mm. it's a 501 C three that is part of ethos. And it it's, you're not going to find another organization out there that does what we do that has a nonprofit. I've never
0: heard. Arm. I've never, yeah, I've never heard. Yes.
1: Of. So Dr. Khanna is, um, is our president of ethos discovery he is amazing. He actually was on the Rachel Ray show. um, Gosh, I think it was back in June uh, with an internal medicine doctor that we've partnered with that they're between the two of them. They're really working on this um, animal human health connection. And so it's really kind of intriguing when you think a DVM and a, a DVM oncologist and an internal med doc are actually collaborating uh, to think about healthcare more broadly. And so what Ethos Discovery does is really uh, clinical trials that um, they then share all of the results of those trials um, to any party that's interested without restriction um, in the commercialization of, of, of what they have found into human healthcare. Wow. So I can't go much deeper than that because uh, non-clinical. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Dr. No. Kana
1: could do a much better job describing it than I can, but um but if you go to the ethosvet.com site and look at the discovery tab, you can see a lot about the different work that they're doing and the importance of that work, not only from advancing veterinary medicine, but but also that um, transferability into human healthcare. It's it's really interesting
0: well the folks at ethos discovery thank you for explaining did
1: i I say it okay i don't know i hope i i know i didn't do it justice but hopefully i didn't misdescribe uh all of their work because it's really important work and and incredible
0: wow you know it sounds it sounds amazing that ethos is involved in that type of work because again you wouldn't think of um uh, an organization involved in veterinary health care uh, and services would, would sort of do that type of thing. So that's amazing. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um,
1: I, I, I think it's, it's, you, you know, a lot of times companies will just put values out there and that's the other part of my role is to really ensure that, that the values that we have at ethos align with uh, with how we actually operate and we, the behaviors that you would see within the organization And to say innovation is a is a value, you know, I'm always going to say, well, what's the proof point? Where do we, where how do how dare we say that's a a value if we don't actually do anything innovative?
0: (laughs) Right, right, right.
1: (laughs) I think you know between Ethos Discovery and their connection in um, with all of our hospitals, it's it's. When uh, Dr. Khanna tried to explain it to me when I first started Ethos, I was blown away. And the kind of cool thing about it, too, is that um, the discovery team will work with our hospitals to hear what are those real time problems that you're experiencing. So it could be a vet tech that says, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things I run into with treatment um, that, you know, it could be more effective if there was something like this you know, or a DVM, if there was something like this that existed, or if we could connect this and this in some way, that would really improve patient outcomes and um, quality and and effectiveness and speed, all of those magical things. And Ethos Discovery will then take that feedback and start researching, you know, how they could iterate in some sort of innovation process to solve for real problems versus just Mm. kind of saying, you know, it'd be interesting to study this. And there's really no connection into, you know, what's really being experienced from DVMs and vet techs and VAs on the front lines. So, you know, they're researching things that actually uh, have transferability into real life problems versus just researching For the sake of researching.
0: Right. And you must have, you're, you're in a unique ability, um, ethos discoveries in a really unique ability because they're connected to all the data points. Yes. Uh, So I think that's, um, that's interesting that you've taken that a step, a step further. Um, let me ask you, obviously we're in some very difficult times right now, and it's going to last for a while. And, you know, I think, as I mentioned, there's a lot in the news about the impact to human healthcare. Uh, with what's going on, but I have not seen anything about sort of you know animal and pet health care. And we talked a little bit about the stresses, but what's going on right now um, that you're seeing that uh, is either similar or different that it's important to be aware of when it comes to providing services during this uh, pandemic?
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, we have seen, increased caseloads at all of our locations, and, and I mean significant increases mm-hmm. in caseloads. Um, so for the, from the, the volume of patients we're seeing, um, that has increased. The way we are operating has had to change as well due to the pandemic. So traditionally you would pull up to one of our hospitals and your, your animal had an emergency and you would walk your animal in, or carry your animal in, and we would, um, you know, be able to take you back to the room and 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 make recommendations and provide treatment. Um, now with the pandemic, we're we're not able to do that. So we have uh, our patients that pull up into the parking lot, and we've had to create new roles at Ethos that are really runner. Type roles, um, you know, that are literally going out to the cars and um, checking in with the families and patients, and you know, kind of uh, helping them get in and out of the building. Where uh, before, you know, a, a patient's family would have come in with them, now the patient family doesn't come in with them. You know, our our priority is to protect. Our, our people and the, right. and the caregivers, and at the same time, deliver the, the exceptional patient care. The way that we can do that is to move to this type of model that we've been operating with since uh, March, which is, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna pull up into the parking lot and we're going to come out and, and meet you and um, take, take the pet in for you. Um, And so that's been a change. It's from just the ethos operating model. It's been a change for us. It's been a change for our patients and their families. Uh, You know, we continue to think about how can we best do that model. And we think a lot about how long are we going to need to do that model? (laughs) Mm, (laughs) Just like everybody else is trying to figure out how long we'll be operating in this type of environment. Uh, You know, ideally, we'll move back to that. To that model when it's safe to do that, but we, we want to ensure that that our colleagues are, sta- are safe and comfortable and as protected as they can be um, as they treat the patients. So it's it's been really interesting from just the volume of caseload and then how we've been able to take care of of patients differently. Um, you know, we've implemented some texting systems yeah, so how do we get information in and out of the hospital to right. you in your car um so i think we're we're trying to come up with again back to that innovation <laughs> not something right. that would have been on our roadmap in january right. but um, certainly something that we've had to adapt to like most other businesses
0: so i'm curious like, why has volume significantly increased because all of this sounds Like if I didn't say you were the chief people officer of a veterinary, uh, uh, you know, emergency care hospital system, someone could say this exact same thing about Brigham and Women's or Mass General or any hospital system. Like, why? Why has it increased so much? Given the fact that, uh, as far as I know, animals can't get COVID nineteen.
1: Yeah. So it's it's not necessarily driven by the animal and COVID-19 issues. it's more um, more in terms of what has been the downstream effect of COVID-19 in terms mm-hmm. of just the industry. So what ended up happening um, in some of our locations is that general practices which are really are referring vets mostly. So you know if you would typically take your, your pet into a, a general practice, and they would see something that caused concern and then they would refer you to us. Um, What's happened now is that a lot of those general practices have either reduced hours or have um, closed Mm. temporarily during the pandemic. And so we have seen a lot of different types of cases than we normally would see under, you know, kind of the non pre pandemic um, type time. So, The types of of cases we're seeing have actually changed where, you know, we would not have seen uh, an animal that needs to have their nails uh, clipped. Uh, But we are now. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, so we have all types of new clients that have come in and the types of things that they need are different. And, you know, once those general practices start to reopen, you know, fully, then that will probably um, impact the volume in a in Mm. a way that's a little a little more manageable. Um, The other thing is, you know, as people are home, um, the number of quarantine pets, we've all seen that seen it out there, you probably have friends that have done it themselves, right? Where it's like, Oh, I'm, I'm at home all the time. Now, let me go get a quarantine pet. So, so I think more people are owning pets, you know, and you've seen a lot of clear the shelters where the the shelter literally runs out of animals, which is fantastic. So you've got all these people who are new pet owners, or they've gotten additional pets. Um, The other theory too, is that, you know, when you, um, when you work away from home a lot, um, you know, maybe you don't, you don't notice some of these, these things happening with your pet. You know, because you're not around them quite as much. And so there, I think there's even some more awareness about what's really going on with your pet because the amount of time that, that you spend with your pet now has increased, right. you know, exponentially because you're at home.
0: Right, right. No, exactly. I think that's really I think that's really interesting. I think people's relationship with their pets must have must be changing a bit because um Now, if you're socially isolated, then you you're even more relying on your pet for comfort and for some connection with something. Um, Right. So I think that's interesting. But what's going to happen when eventually we will see this change back to some sort of new normal, whether there's a vaccine or whatever, then how how is the pet going to adjust to all of a sudden, you're not home five days a week, or maybe you're home three days, or you're out more. Um, it's going to be interesting. Just like people are looking at the psychological effect on this on humans, someone hopefully is looking at the psychological effect on your pet when it comes to this.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a it's a great point, and it's it's something that you know you're seeing more articles come out about. Um, you yeah, know, but what, what's interesting is, um so many businesses are now adopting a work from home mentality. And so, you know, under that new norm umbrella, I don't know, you know, will, will there be this huge change for the, for the pets Mm. if Mm. you're working and the reason you would have, you know, had this new separation from your pet then uh, that they're experiencing was driven by you having to go to work if you work for one of the employers who is saying well you know what i don't know that we're going to call everybody back or we may not call everybody back until 2021 right. um, so many companies are rethinking where people have to work mm. um so i don't know it'll be interesting to see i, I agree with you I, I hope that that is not the case where you know um our our family members with with four legs have gotten so used to us. And then all of a sudden we're kind of ripped away from them because you know, that emotion goes both ways. We love them as much as they love us. Uh, sometimes yes. I think they love us more, frankly. Yes. Um, I don't know if you've yes. seen on um, TikTok. I uh, So this, that should tell you I have a teenager. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> I've been on TikTok, and they've, they've had these, um, these funny, you know, kind of streams where you, um, you kind of put the camera up and then your pet is lying there minding its own business and you go up and invade its space and um. you know either you know kind of lie down on them or or whatever and um, you see the reaction and I mean you can just see the love that pets have for people because you know the owner will lay down on them they can't see it see the pet's reaction but the pet is like it's like they melt when the owner is snuggled up with them. And, and so it's, it's, it's just one of those beautiful things, the relationship between um, the families and whatever their pet is, if it's, you know, birds, cats, bunnies, (laughs) horses, (laughs) you know, we have an exotics doctor in, uh, in one of our locations. And I, I love kind of seeing the pictures that that we put out of some of the exotics that that he's treating. I saw a goose, I want to say it was a, a few weeks ago. I mean, it it's just amazing to see the the variation of pets that come through the doors.
0: <laughs> how how has how has the relationship with your two rescue dogs? I think it's Sammy and Duncan. Oh gosh. Does that changed it yes. all now that you're home. Like are you feeding them more treats? Are you well see like, I told what, you that the
1: one has a weight issue now. Um yeah, so they're two totally different dogs um duncan is in like nine we think you you know you never really know you have the vets can give you an estimate but we didn't get him as a puppy we rescued him when we think he was a year or two years old um and he was just the most sad pathetic little guy ever um just skin and bones, and had a tough life. And when we went to um, rescue an animal, we went in, and he honestly just—we found each other, right? He—he he was the one that was in the back of the cage, all the way in the back corner. You know, we went up to see him. He would not. He was so scared. He wouldn't come up to see you. And um, and so then we were like, "Yeah, that's the one. He—he's the one that needs." love because Uh, he's so scared. And so he, um, he is just the sweetest, kindest, gentle dog ever, probably 45 pounds. He's a greyhound something mix. uh, Um, And then Sammy is a red retriever that, again, we we think he's probably around two and a half. Um, And he is a red retriever something and he is a stage five clinger. He is like hyper. <laughs> he, <laughs> he needs to be like, under your feet every minute of the day when I heard the barking. I'm like, yep, yeah, I bet that's Sammy. <laughs>
0: um,
1: but yeah, I, I had been, you know, kind of looking at puppy pictures uh, one morning before I was flying out for the for the day and my husband saw me looking at the puppy pictures and I said, Oh, it's so cute. Don't you think? And, (laughs) and um, I left and I hopped on a flight and I was actually flying to two different cities that day. And so he was texting me before I got on the first flight. I landed from that flight and he was sending me this, uh, you know, sequence of pictures throughout the day that started with uh, my family at home looking at puppy pictures on rescue sites and then I'd land and the next picture was they're in a car driving <laughs> to a location and then I'd go into a meeting and I'd come out and then there's a picture of them in, you know, uh, in the humane society, you know, playing with a puppy. And then I'd, I hopped on another flight and then, you know, it continues. And then my last flight I landed and there was a puppy in our front yard so <laughs> that's great. Yes. Yeah, so that's how we got Sammy. I was actually on a business trip and, uh, and came home from the trip three days later and there was our puppy.
0: Oh, oh wow. <laughs> wow. That now did they wait till you were away where it's too late for you to stop <laughs> it or?
1: Oh, I, you know, what? I, I am, uh, I would not have stopped it. Uh, Yeah. Would not have stopped it. I, I can't help myself. If I worked, you know, day in, day out in one of our, um, our locations, I would be one of those people that has, you know, six Uh, animals. uh, I I would be taking them all, all home. So it's probably best that I I just continue to travel and visit the hospitals versus working 100% in a hospital.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, one of the things that was really interesting um, about you was uh, this five red wagon principles. Um, and uh, let's see if I can even show um, the, uh, the picture of, uh, of this, where yeah. you actually spoke at, I mean, this is real, you, you spoke at an event and I just, I there, there's a little bit of information on it. Um, can you talk about that? Because it seems like this is so innovative and just unique, but has real heart to it. Um, I would love to know more about that.
1: Yeah, so that was um, that was me presenting at this global people con for Coca Cola. Um, so they had put together this week of. Um, of presentations and keynotes for uh, their entire global team. Um, And so they had brought in these amazing presenters like Adam Grant and Daniel Pink. And then somehow I ended up on the lineup and I was like, (laughs) how did I land this keynote next to Daniel Pink and Adam Grant, Uh, but thank you. Uh, And so really the, the premise of Red Wagon principles and thinking actually has a dog connection, believe it or not. Um, The idea is really around taking risk. And I think it's, it's interesting um, for people in general, but I think it's interesting for people who work in the HR profession, because it's just not generally part of their core DNA is to take risk. Their, their job is actually to mitigate risk. And so when you have somebody in my type of role, who's like, let's, do it. You uh, know, it's, uh, uh. it's unusual at times for that. And so, um, so red wagons was really this way to to start to frame up this idea of taking risk and putting yourself out there. And when you fail, that's okay. I have failed mm. plenty of times. Um, but it doesn't stop me from taking risk. And I, I think some of that is just, mm. you know, in your upbringing, where you you're taught Listen, take a chance. If you fail, you'll you're the learning is going to be so worth figuring it out. And a lot of times you don't fail. So it's made up in your brain to be so much more than what it actually is. And and if you never take your toes over the line of can I or can't I, you never really fully understand what you can achieve. Um and so I I was trying to think of how do I take all of these thoughts and stories around risks i've taken and how they've turned out and where did it really start where did this risk-taking behavior start and so i tracked it back um, to my grandma's driveway in west virginia so my grandma lived in west virginia and she had um, her house kind of tucked down a hill Mm -hmm. at the top of that hill was her driveway And so her driveway is super steep. You would, you know, you would go straight down, and then there was this hairpin turn to the right to get into her garage. And so I really think the beginning of my risk taking behavior and like this love of adrenaline and the rush (laughs) started because I was bored at my grandma's house in West Virginia. And I found this red wagon in her garage. And me, you know, being a kid and not. You know, using logic as as my first guiding principle, I saw this red wagon. I'm like, Ugh, yeah, what what am I going to do with this? Yeah, you know, I can just pull it around her driveway, boring. Um, and so I decided I would take it to the very top of her driveway and turn it around with that black handle in the front, and um, I would ride it down her steep driveway and <laughs> take a hard right. <laughs> <at the bottom. laughs> And so I, um, I was like, well, I can't do this alone. Um, and I tried to talk, you know, my sister into it. I, I, we had a neighborhood friend. I tried to talk her into it and, you know, they're smarter than I am. And they're both like, no, (laughs) wait, you want to do what? I'm like, yeah, I want to do this. It's going to be great. It's going to be fun. Ah, no, no, no. And so the poor family dog became my partner, my co-pilot. And so I uh, grabbed the family dog and threw her in the wagon with me, and uh, we went up to the top of my grandma's driveway. And I I put her in front of me, and I had my legs on the outsides of the red oh. wagon.
0: <laughs> and you, know, oh.
1: you have that like teetering at the top. Uh, where your heart's pounding, and uh, and so I was like, oh, here we go, and I, I can't even imagine what the dog was feeling. Like I, you know, the, that's the ride or die, right? That's that's why people exactly. love their pets so much. That your dog is your ride or die. Like they're right. with you. You know, I'm with you. You want to do it? Let's do it. And so, uh, so we went careening down my grandmother's uh, driveway, and you know. Two wheeled it like Tokyo Drift, you know, uh-huh. to the side, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and it 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 worked out um, for a few times, and then finally she got smart enough to to not let me throw her in that wagon anymore. She got a taste of what I was going to do. Exactly. Um, but yeah, so it 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 really started to frame up when I start to think through um, risk and where did it start for me and, and this love for it. Um, it really kind of starts when I was a kid and playing with that red wagon and feeling that rush of adrenaline and realizing, oh, it can be done, even though other people mm-hmm. said, you're crazy. Why would you do that? I did, of course, like my, my grandma's driveway, you either went straight off the edge into like pine trees, or you made the right hand corner. And there were a few times where I went straight off into the pine trees. Um, but you know, I dusted myself back off and pulled the wagon back up. and that's just kind of how I think about things now is is there are these red wagon opportunities where people may say you're crazy, um, people may not want to get in with you and that's okay. Right. but that doesn't mean right. that you should limit your thinking to what others may say. You should do what you think is right and, and measure the risk. Mm. And if you're comfortable mm. that the risk level is one that, that you can recover from, if, if it doesn't go well, go for it.
0: Now, is there, are these written down anywhere? Have you, uh, you mentioned on, I found a website and mentioned you were gonna write a book or something. So is there a document that if someone yeah. wants to say, I need to see this, where do they go?
1: Yeah, so it's interesting when I um, when I delivered this keynote um, at Coke uh, Coca Cola, uh, there was an audience member that does the um, he takes notes with drawings. Yeah. And so afterwards, he had felt the connection so much he actually sent me the drawing. I need to put it. It might actually be in one of the pictures on my on that website.
0: It, it is, but yeah. it's kind of tough to see it
1: yeah um, i so cool. i I need to pick back up my writing. i I was writing, and then I put it down, and I need to finish writing all of the thoughts to make that into the book because it was it resonated with people in a a way I hadn't I hadn't really thought it would. I thought it you know it might be interesting for people, but I think it really resonated and and people started thinking about. Well, Holly's just a regular person. I mean, I'm not, there's nothing special in me that, that, you know, has set me up for better success than anyone else. Or, you know, I'm a, I'm a mom with two kids and two dogs and, you know, live in the burbs. Uh, You know, there's nothing special about me that, that screams, oh, you know, well, she would be better prepared to take that risk than anyone else. It's not true. So everybody has this in their, their core DNA. It's just whether you choose to, to tap into it or not.
0: Yeah. I, I, um, I was on a was watching another Facebook live from I think Jim Edwards who has written copywriting books and stuff. And he was saying everyone should write a book and he had an interesting philosophy, which is to write down 20 questions that you would want to ask someone who's interested in this give it to a friend have them ask you and then record it and have it transcribed and a mm. little edit and there's your there's your book like in you know a week uh, rather That's than trying amazing. to think about it yeah and i was like i, I was like i'm gonna write a book you know i, I don't need to know, write that
1: down <laughs>
0: yeah yeah people it's you know um you do have a really interesting background but you've invented this and especially right now during this time i think people people have time to do that to self improve but also i think people are um uh, are really interested in this type of in this type of thing and you know risk taking and how do you do it and um, yeah you should that's that's sort of a model that that he came up with and he's written a bunch of you know books but he says ebooks is one thing but having a printed book and you just send it to Amazon and they'll print it like it makes all the difference because people yeah. want to hold something.
1: Yeah, I think um, this is this is a a challenging time, but it's it's a time where you can be a little opportunistic at the same time. Uh, you know, again, just really understanding where you are in your life and the amount of risk that you're comfortable with. And to me, it's never um, just a static level of risk. Uh, mm. You know, it 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 ebbs and flows based on where I am in my life. So, you know, I may take more risk personally and less risk professionally at times. I may turn, you know, take more professional risk and less personal, you know, the main thing is, is really understanding yourself in this process and being open to the road as it, as it reveals itself in front of you. You know, sometimes you can have such a, um, a narrow view or vision of what you can or should be and you mm-hmm. limit yourself and right now as markets are changing industries are changing you may see that this is a great opportunity that you've been in you know retail your entire life right. um or, you know or me I've been in human healthcare my entire life I've had a million different types of roles within human healthcare and I've had global experience working in human healthcare but but this was a really cool opportunity for me to learn um, veterinary medicine, and again, you know, really start to to pin together the transferability of what I'd already done in my career to this industry that I would have initially thought. Well, I don't know that I have anything right. that I can right. I can share. I don't come from that industry. Well, <laughs> guess what? You know, so many industries prepare you for other industries and so you know my right. my other plug is you know take a look at veterinary health and medicine right now if you have a passion for for animals and and quality of care for animals it, even if you don't work in this field right now you should take a look at it and see is this the right time for you to explore something you know in a different industry like veterinary medicine and Good ethos up. has well, we have Three hundred openings right now. So we have, yeah, we have a a fantastic story, which is you hear so many companies that are unfortunately in a position where they're letting people go and furloughing. We have the opposite, and we are hiring um, at incredible levels throughout all twenty five locations. So, um, so consider us. uh, We have a location probably right by you. Wow. And, and if we find don't, we have this. some remote roles. So. <clears throat>
0: and pe- people find all this at Ethos Vet. I think I've got a, even a banner somewhere about this. Ethos Vet uh, dot com.
1: Yes. Yeah. Hit the uh, apply now button and you'll see all the different roles. A lot of the roles um, at the more. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Uh, Don't require extensive background. And that's why I said this could be a time for people to even think about pivoting career wise or industry wise. There are positions that require, you know, no um, veterinary medicine experience. There are positions in our home office that are, you know, kind of your standard project management, those types Mm -hmm. of roles. Um, So we've got over 2000 colleagues right now. so, So we would love to have you as maybe 2001
0: <laughs> <laughs> the, <clears throat> the last thing i want to touch on i brought up earlier which is pathways to independence because yes, because i looked it up and that seems obviously you're passionate about it you're on the board i would love for you to just talk about that a little bit um so people are aware of it because i think it i think it's doing amazing work
1: thank you yes um so, Pathways to Independence is a nonprofit that I have the pleasure of of serving as the president of the board for. And what Pathways does um, for over thirty years in the St. Louis area has they have worked with adults with developmental disabilities, and that could look like a lot of different things. It could be Asperger's. It could be a certain level of autism. Uh, it could it could mean that there's uh, some physical um, challenges to a participant as well. Most of our participants live with their parents their entire lives. um, And they are looking for ways to socialize with with people. You know, um, a lot of times with our participants, you may not meet them and realize that they have um, some sort of developmental um, disability. Um, And so they may come across a little bit, you know, awkward to you or quiet or they do things in a certain um, routine way that doesn't make sense to you, but it makes sense to them. And so um, a lot of times when you have somebody who um, who is potentially on the the spectrum, um, they have a hard time Mm. forming those social connections. And so they, they become very isolated. And so what we do is we really work with um, adults who, you know, programming through the government is potentially ended at 18 and they have no other social outlet. We provide that social outlet and then training for them. Um, you know, uh, we've even had some things on dating, believe it or not, you know, of how do you... Know, <laughs> <having> you. <laughs> how do you date? How do you do these things? You know, how do you interview for a job? Um, We have things that we call social college, which again, you know, it's just helping develop social skills. um, So they feel more comfortable interacting with anyone and everyone and holding a position where they feel confident. Um, The participants are absolutely amazing and their families, my gosh, are just amazing as well when you it's not hard to want to work with with pathways and our participants because they're just an amazing group and the programming for us with the pandemic has changed immensely too so you can imagine if your whole uh model is around in-person social activities where you could be going bowling you could be going you know we would hold an annual picnic uh Right. You know, we had fundraisers at restaurants, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and now none of that exists. And so I'm I just am amazed at how well the Pathways team was able to pivot from this all in person programming to all virtual mm-hmm. and do it in a way where the participants don't feel isolated, even though they are at home. You know, we looked mm-hmm. at it as an opportunity to connect them in a more technological way. So, you know, how do we help them learn how to get onto the internet? How do we help them learn, you know, how to do a zoom call or whatever it is. So there was opportunity again, you know, if you look for the opportunity, if there's one out there, there's some positive uh, nugget that you can glean from anything. And so we were able to say, well, boy, this wasn't part of the, the, three year strategic plan to do programming this way, but our participants need us. So we're gonna figure this out and we're gonna figure it out quickly. And um, so I'm just so proud that we've been able to continue to serve that population in a, a different way. And it's it's forced us to do some different innovation that never would have been on our roadmap. Wow. We would have told you that's that's the exact opposite of what we wanna do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's amazing. Well, I, um, I cannot thank you enough for taking some time and, and doing this. And as I mentioned, this is this, I mean, Facebook is fantastic about just recirculating this on everyone's feed. Um, so I, I really appreciate it. And, um, you know, you have an amazing background. It seems like you're in the right place at the right time. Um, particularly with what's going on right now, and we'll probably extend for, you know, for at some point, I just want to put up that, uh. (laughs) <laughs> your friends over there said you know definitely echo come work with us uh and uh, Kelly wrote go Holly <laughs> so you have friends there uh, rooting for you so um but thank you, thank you very much with people people just go, they want to learn more ethos.com.
1: Yes, yes. Um, And I I have to just throw in one last thing, which is to say thank you to all of our Ethos colleagues. I know that it has been um, challenging to say the least. Um, You heard I'm trying to put a plug in to hire more people. I know you need more resources. And um, I just want to say thank you to our entire Ethos team for for working so hard and um, reminding you to take care of yourselves um, in this process as well. But thank you for all that you do to take care of our patients and their families. Um, You are so appreciated and we can't say it enough.
0: Uh, That's fantastic. I'm sure they'll see this and uh, appreciate appreciate the sentiment. Um, well jeff
1: thanks so much this was great uh, i was looking forward to this um all week and i so appreciate you inviting me and it was a pleasure and an honor
0: well thank thank you and i'll just uh show i've got a i've got a url my dog brandy if you if you go there you'll see all the lists where the podcast i have um, you know the goal is to do interviews like this and uh, just tell stories about my dog i mean it's kind of crazy. This whole thing originated for me when I was, I took a course and I was trying to come up with a podcast idea. And I had a bunch of ideas about me. My college friends said, you know, those are nice, but we really want to hear the stories about Brandy. Less about you, more about him." <laughs> so I was like, okay, once again, he's, you know, he's no longer with us, but he gets in, gets in my life. So um, that's great. Well, never thank you leave very it. much.
1: The never, their soul never. is always with you. So they never, yeah. though physically they may not be there, they are always with you.
0: Yes, I, I believe he's looking down and, you know, probably laughing, but you know, definitely <laughs> probably asking for a bagel. He ate bagels all the time. So or an ice cream. Dog. <laughs> ice cream. And ice and, cream. And ice cream. So uh, great. Well, thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Bye, everyone.